Previously on Beta. <laughs> anyway, come on back to the gift shop and let's get you a souvenir t-shirt. That's what the money is for! It's probably an awful thing to say, but most of the time your reaction is kind of... <laughs> Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta. Today, Ben Perkert explores the toxic masculinity that permeates the world of advertising in his debut novel, The Men Can't Be Saved. The more I worked on the book, the more I identified with Seth. And I began to ask myself, well, okay, Ben, what are the things that, that you think about yourself that may not be true? And if you're one of Stephen King's constant readers, perhaps you're also one of Beta's constant listeners. If that's the case, stay tuned for French filmmaker Daphne Bayweir, who discusses her documentary, King on Screen. People who don't know really much about uh, literature, they know Stephen King because they've always seen at least one film. But first, Greg Marshall. He's pulled off the seemingly impossible. He's written a memoir that is both heartfelt and hilarious. It's called Lake, the story of a limb and the boy who grew from it. The book is an enlightening chronicle about the power of identity. Greg writes frankly about being gay and about dealing with cerebral palsy. His parents told him he just had tight tendons. As Greg writes in Lake, that was just par for the course. He says his mother had her own special way of making life seem much larger than it actually was. Her approach in my life as kind of a tall tale teller was to go so far in the other direction of not only not acknowledging it, but sort of completely papering over it with this kind of dazzle camouflage of saying, it's a wonderful leg and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And by the way, your dad died of ALS. And so she... You know, I, I wanted to uh, kind of put her reaction in there because it kind of encapsulates not just her reaction to my disability, but just all of the other issues that were going on with my family. And so it was kind of this whole soup of disability in my family that it wasn't just my leg and my cerebral palsy, which, you know, wasn't talked about. It was kind of how were all of these other disabilities in my family treated, you know, which ones were valorized and celebrated and which ones were ignored and minimized. Mm -hmm. Very well said, and you do that very well. And it's just amazing all the the health issues that that struck your family. And I'm sorry that 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 has happened. And I'm sorry for the loss of your father, Bob. That's it's it's terrible. But despite that, you've written a memoir that's not only poignant but is also very funny. And that it's just like, how do you pull that off? Leg is a beautifully written memoir. It's poignant, very funny and so revealing about your life and your thoughts. It's amazing just how brave you are in making all these confessions that I think a lot of other memoir writers wouldn't make. Was there anything that you didn't include that you decided, no, no, that's a little too much detail. That's something I'm not willing to share. There were things that were outside of the scope of disability and queerness because my mom was adopted into a large Basque family. And so there's a ton of stories and lore in those quarters. But I really wanted to track queerness and disability as sources of intimacy in my family and see how, you know, something like my mom's cancer shaped her as a storyteller, as a survivor, as the hero of her own story. 
and as a writer and how those things shaped me as well and kind of on down the line. You, your parents told you that you had tight tendons and instead of revealing the truth that you had cerebral palsy. Why do you think they did that? Oh boy, that's sort of the central question of the book. I think that they just didn't want me to live with what they perceived as limitations or with stigma. And I think in some ways they were right. I don't think that they're at all the villains of my story. They're really two of the heroes of my story, but it's more about kind of a system-wide, society-wide perception of how we reckon with our bodies and how we find our own places in the world in spite of our differences. And so I don't think that they were necessarily wrong to not tell me, you know, point blank that I have cerebral palsy. I sure wish now that I'd known earlier so that I could have been just in command of my own body and had all of the facts. And then I could have been the hero of my own story in the way that my mom was the hero of her own story with cancer and writing her in writing her column. Mm. Yeah, very well said. I, I think, though, I would go so far as to say, I, I think that you are the hero. I think your mother and father are, the, are heroes, too, obviously, such great parents, but in so many ways. But I think you, the fact that you were brave enough to write this memoir and to write it so well that it's, you know, funny and poignant, I think you've to me anyway, you've proven that you're the hero of your own story. So how did you discover that you had cerebral palsy? So I was applying for private health insurance in 2014. For the first time in my life, I'd come out of grad school and my insurance application was flagged. I'd grown up having um, surgery on my hamstrings and Achilles tendon and physical therapy. So a lot of the trappings of uh, cerebral palsy, a lot of the treatments of someone who has cerebral palsy. And so whoever was looking at my insurance application saw those things and just asked me, hey, so what is the source of your traumatic brain injury? And I was so taken aback. I was like, what traumatic brain injury are you talking about? And so at that point, I pulled my medical records from Primary Children's. And sure enough, there on every single page, it had sentences like, to whom it may concern, Greg Marshall has spastic cerebral palsy related to prematurity. After I read those medical records, I gave my mom a call. And part of me was sort of expecting her to be like, oh my gosh, well, you always knew that you had cerebral palsy. I mean, what are you, why is this a surprise? But her reaction was very much the other direction where she just kind of was in this panic about it. But I think it really clued me into the magnitude of that lie of omission or that fib, that it kind of really was this big deal. And her reaction, as much as anything else, made me want to go back into my childhood and re-examine what had happened. I mean, so many of the, what I perceived as kind of these funny coming of age stories had this deeper side to them. Mm -hmm. So did this discovery, did that kind of ruin or did it have a, a negative impact on your relationship with your with your parents going forward after you discovered that you had cerebral palsy? You know, I think that there was a little bit of like teenage indignity on my part. And mm -hmm. I de definitely don't want to gloss over the part where I was just kind of pissed off. And I felt like I'd been hung out to dry. 
there'd been so much of my life that I'd navigated, like, you know, being a, a journalist at a newspaper in Park City, Utah, and not having all of the tools at my disposal that I might have otherwise. If I'd been able to walk into that newsroom and said, hey, you know, I need a headset for interviews because I have cerebral palsy and it kind of affects one side of my body. And I'm still a great reporter and I'm still a great writer, but maybe I need a little bit of, you know, an extension on a deadline or maybe we can tweak the production calendar. You know, just little accommodations like that that I could have made for myself. But overall, I would just say that it was such a relief to have the diagnosis. And once I was in possession of that, I felt like I had the distance I needed to write my own story. And so I think by writing my story, kind of fresh off the heels of learning about my diagnosis, I very quickly became empowered. I mean, I think I kind of became the quote hero of my story a little bit more in a way that made me less upset with my parents. And, you know, I think that it ultimately really over the years has led to so many deep and profound conversations with people in my family. And I don't know that we would have had those conversations otherwise. I think sometimes out of politeness or decorum, even with people we love a lot, we kind of leave out the topic sentence or we, you know, we don't want to go there in a way that we feel like is going to put someone on the spot or hurt someone or make them upset with you. And I think once the top was blown off on the kind of cerebral palsy diagnosis, we were just able to go there more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Your mother was still battling cancer when your father, Bob, discovered a twitch in his shoulder while he was training for the Boston Marathon. And that, what, what, what did that turn out to be? Uh, that twitch in his shoulder was a fasciculation, which is a muscle twitch that's an early symptom of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. So basically it was the indication that he had a terminal diagnosis and that you know he was facing a neuromuscular condition that would essentially kill or diminish nearly every muscle in his body. His ALS was unfortunately really aggressive and he went on a feeding tube that summer and he was on a BiPAP for a few months and then went on a respirator and lasted about a year. I write in the book, there was this moment where before my dad was on a respirator, when we drove up one of the canyons near our house in Salt Lake City and my dad and I kind of awkwardly sit on these rocks and he just says, you know, I'm starting to understand a little bit more about your leg. It just never really goes away, does it? That was kind of a launching point where we started to talk more intimately about our bodies. Those conversations that I had with my dad were the first times where I did directly use the word disabled. I didn't at that time know that I had cerebral palsy, but I would ask him things like, well, do you think of yourself as disabled? Do you have ALS in your dreams? I think we were able to just relate to each other on a on a really deep, meaningful level. And I think to see someone like my dad, who'd always been my caretaker, who'd always been so able and active and, um, you know, a skier and a runner, to see that you kind of both are and aren't your body and that there are parts of you that really do transcend your, quote, physical limitations, but also that a disability is 
a profound part of your identity and that it's okay to talk about it and okay to reckon with it and okay to have, you know, feelings about it so that hopefully you can get to a place of joy and acceptance and celebration of those things. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you got that as you and your father were able to see each other's bodies in new ways, which is great. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's the central idea that you're conveying in leg in, in a way, isn't it? Seeing ourselves in new ways? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, seeing ourselves in just our totality, like I wanted a book that wasn't so really academic or really dry or really poetic. I think sometimes when people write about their bodies, there's this desire to make it really highfalutin. What I wanted to do was just show myself and my family as we actually are. You asked earlier a little bit about my family's reaction. And one of the reactions from my brother that I just loved was, you know, he, he praised the book and really liked it. And he said, you know, I mean, the thing is, it's just really honest. And he kind of, you know, kind of said it as a little bit of a, of like, well, you know, the family's not going to just love this because it's like really honest. But I sort of took that as a compliment, like a mark of, of authenticity. Yeah, you have this great quote um, that you think the central idea of your book is looking at queerness and disability as sources of intimacy and unity rather than sources of tension and division. And I think you've, you've achieved that. And that that's, that's a major accomplishment. Thanks. Yeah. It's not like you write a book and the consciousness level of your entire family or your entire society sort of like raises. To me, it was about making those connections of I'm gay. I came out years later, you know, my mom, after my dad passed away, my mom, started checking up with, you know, one of her former doctors, Alice, who really kind of became the second love of her life. And they've been together all these years and they look out for each other and they have a very funny, loving, queer relationship. And I mean, not to center myself too much in that experience, but I don't know if my Coldwater Creek loving suburban mom who'd grown up Catholic among Mormons would have taken the leap onto the wild side and been open to being with a woman for the last 15 years if it weren't for having a gay son. And so I just saw little connections. I think sometimes when we talk about disability, there's like a little bit of the stage goes dark and it's just a spotlight on like the disability, which I guess is literally what I'm doing with my book, calling it leg and, you know, kind of that wink and nudge, but also just that we don't have disabilities or any part of the human experience in isolation. You know, we're kind of part of the fabric of our family. You don't just like have a disability and sit in your room. You are out there in the world, you know, among other people having interactions and they're having their own stuff going on. We fit our bodies into our families and our families kind of shape our bodies. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Yeah. Would you mind reading the dedication? Oh, yeah. To dad who said I could do it. To mom who drove me to it. That's great. That pretty much sums <laughs> it up, doesn't it? I think. Greg Marshall, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Leg, the story of a limb and the boy who grew from it. It's an incredible memoir. I'm looking forward to reading your next book. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. 
Greg Marshall is the author of Leg, the story of a limb and the boy who grew from it. Find out more about Greg and his book at wpr.org slash beta. I would push a poem out probably before it was ready. You can't do that really with a novel. You, you have to cultivate a different relationship to it. Coming up, Ben Perker talks about using his advertising experience to create his debut novel about a cocky copywriter and toxic masculinity. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. If you're a fan of Mad Men like we are, you're going to like Ben Perkert's debut novel, The Men Can't Be Saved. It's about an overly confident copywriter named Seth Taranoff. Seth is trying to recapture the success he had with an ad that went viral. But The Men Can't Be Saved is about much more than Seth's efforts to rediscover his glory days. The book also explores redemption, toxic masculinity, addiction, and spirituality. The central question is, What do our jobs do to our souls? The Man Can't Be Saved is funny and smart and gives you a lot to think about, both while you're reading and long after you've finished reading. And Ben knows this world. Before he became a poet and a novelist, Ben worked as a copywriter. He joins us now to talk about the book, what he learned about himself by writing it, and why he decided to pursue a career in advertising those many years ago. Coming out of college, I really didn't know what to do. I wanted to be a published author. I didn't, frankly, want to be a copywriter at an ad agency or a branding agency. But as I started looking at job postings and I bumped my head against the reality, which is that college grads need to find a job, it seemed that this was one of the ways that I could take what I loved about my English education and apply it to business and and make some money and and pay off some loans. So that, that was really, you know, it was a practical decision. It wasn't, it wasn't a creative one. Mm-hmm. Um, if I read this correctly, that your college, you asked your college advisor what you should do with your life, and your college advisor told you you should be a copywriter. Her advice was way more practical than I thought she would give me. You know, she just said, "Why don't you try copywriter first before you go off and try to write the great American poem or the great American novel or something like that?" So she was very clear-headed, and it ended up being great advice, I think, because had I not had that experience working in that world of, of the ad agency, I don't think I would have written this novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and that would be, a, we, we would miss having this novel to read. When we think of advertising, we tend to think of Mad Men, the Mad Men era. How have things changed since the Mad Men era? When I started working at the agency, it was right around the same time that Mad Men debuted. And I loved that show, my colleagues loved the show. We would gather, I think the show aired on Sunday nights, and then Monday mornings we'd come together into the office and we would talk about the show. And we would talk about, first of all, all the things that had changed from the 1960s to today, all these things that were unrecognizable. 
But then we would talk about the more interesting thing, which was everything that hadn't changed. And a lot of the electricity of the environment, a lot of the big personalities, the big egos, but also the, the toxicity, the, the, the ways in which underlings especially, like we were just treated like trash, whether it was the clients or the creative directors. And the bigger the ego on some level, the, the further you got in that world of business. That was a bold last minute decision, going with your idea. I thought it was more they wanted. Well, we'll never know, will we? Because they never heard mine. Look, I don't like going in with two ideas. It's weak. And you don't want to be weak, so you picked yours. And they bought it, which is our goal, isn't it? What do I care? I got a million of them. A million. Good. I guess I'm lucky you work for me. I feel bad for you. I don't think about you at all. And so, you know, if, if you squinted, it didn't feel that different from the Mad Men era to today. And so I wanted to write a book that examined um, that a little bit, all the ways in which this culture, even as it tells itself that it's a highly progressive environment, maybe hasn't evolved in the way that it, it likes to say it has. Mm, yeah. How difficult was it for you to make the transition from writing poems to writing a novel? It was a difficult transition because my background was really in poetry. It wasn't in fiction. And I just wasn't prepared for the scale. Just wrapping my head around the fact that if you change something about your character on the first page, well, that's going to ripple throughout this entire landscape that you've created. That was incredibly daunting to me, but also it was a thrilling kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you wrote an essay about the whole experience and you said that you found yourself in hell. <laughs> at the beginning, was it, was it really that, that that bad and tough for you? Well, that, I was maybe being a bit, uh, I don't know, a bit hysterical there. I don't, I don't know that it was quite hell, but it felt sometimes like I had these tiny little nail scissors. Like I was, I was used to bonsai. I was used to working at that level, and now I had this entire, you know, soccer field that I had to to cut the grass for, and it was just going to be this. Um, endless labor, but there, there's a lot of Zen in that too. And I, I had to be patient. I would push a poem out probably before it was ready. You can't do that really with a novel. You, you have to cultivate a different relationship to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why it took, I guess, 10 years to, to write it. Yeah. L let's talk about your protagonist, Seth Taranoff. Can you tell us a bit about him? Seth is one of these people who has a pretty overinflated sense of himself. It's hard to say that with authority because the book is in the first person. So we're in Seth's head. And when we meet him, he's really riding high. He's just written a tagline that's gone viral, albeit it's for a obscure brand of adult diapers. But, you know, don't let that deter you, right? Seth, <laughs> Seth, Seth thinks he's going to be partner at the agency any day now. And as the book progresses, we pretty quickly see that his vision of, of grandeur for himself is not going to be realized. And in fact, he's going to have a pretty steep downfall even within the first few chapters. And what's interesting to me about Seth is, is the extent to which he does not see himself. But the characters around him, they do see him. And so a, as the reader, you move through an experience where on the one hand, you get the PR department of Seth. You get Seth telling the reader you know, what, what he sees for himself. But then you have these other characters who kind of splash him with cold water constantly. 
And that way in which not men exclusively, all of us can delude ourselves or sometimes not examine ourselves or see ourselves clearly. I, I wanted to look at that phenomenon in the book. Mm, yeah, yeah. And as you mentioned, Seth is still living off the glory of this commercial that he wrote a while back, which went viral. And you, you touched on it, but I, I would, wouldn't mind if you could give us a fuller description of what uh, about the ad. It's an ad for adult diapers for men specifically. And Seth, against all odds, has this tagline that goes viral. The, the tagline is the everyday breeze for the everyday hero. And he just envisions, you know, that this is going to be uh, on his mantle. This is going to be the thing on his resume that carries him, you know, to the promised land. But he is not saved by this achievement. And, and it feels like no one else is as impressed with him as he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, the major themes of The Man Can't Be Saved is toxic masculinity. And you mentioned that before. Why did you want to explore this idea? I grew up with a notion or a framing of masculinity that was really antithetical to vulnerability. Like to be a, a tough man was to be a man. And I think that that's the, the frame that a lot of us are given, not just men but our society in general, that that's what masculinity is. And with a character like Seth, he's obsessed with making partner. And we all know that these people, we may be those people, you know, they, they want the title, they want the office, they're striving. And that often feels like a very masculine virtue, like to, to win and to get the prize is to do good. And Seth wants partnership within the agency. But I think if you think about that word partner, what he really wants is connection is partnership in the sense of fraternity and intimacy. And that's what's so elusive for him. I wanted to explore masculinity and the things that are toxic about it or, or the ways in which it can become toxic, right? Because I don't want to conflate the two or suggest that masculinity is inherently toxic. But I think that we needed to see a character who tells himself he wants one thing when in fact in his heart he wants something else. And his loneliness is a, is a counterbalance, I think, to the comedy of the book. Hmm. Yeah, very well said. You have this great quote that you mentioned in an interview I read, uh, a great quote from the poet Philip B. Williams, uh, this line that he gave at a commencement speech, what have you experienced that, uh, that has planted a seed in you that if it blooms to its fullest capacity, it could undo you? And you say that that is a question we all need to be asking ourselves, perhaps men especially. So when you ask yourself that Philip B. Williams question, what is the answer that you come up with? I think it's a question to wrestle with more than mm. to answer. I, mm -hmm. to, write, to write this book, I think that it started out as more of a satire, more of a, an office place comedy in the style of something like The Office, for example, which I, which I love and I still love. Mm -hmm. and, and also, it also reminded me a little bit of Joshua Ferris's Then We Came to the End, which also reminded oh, yeah. me of The Office. Yeah. I love, and I love that book so much. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it was funny at first, right? We have this character, this copywriter who, who thinks he's the world, and, and then we watch him spiral down, and, and we laugh at him. But the more I worked on the book, the more I identified with Seth. And I began to ask myself, well, okay, Ben, what are the things that that you think about yourself that may not be true. Just wrestling with that question is so important for men, but for all, for all people to do. So I, that to me is the joy of writing and the joy of 
making art is, is that the danger of that discovery. Let me try to explore. Let me try to dig and, and see what happens. What is it about the advertising industry that brings out this latent toxicity in men? There are ad agencies where friends of mine work that are wonderful places, that are supportive places. So I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. But the advertising, branding, marketing world really at its core is all about spin. It's all about taking the facts of something and then spinning it into a narrative. And I do think that that maneuver is frankly not all that different from the way in which we spin narratives about ourselves and we cast our behavior in a certain light, a favorable light. So is it, is it, is it that element of advertising that lends itself to toxic behavior? I think there may be something there. After Seth loses his job, he starts to explore his spiritual side and he strikes up this friendship with an Orthodox rabbi. What impact does the rabbi's faith have on Seth? In the U.S., this is the first question we ask each other. Oh, what do you do for a living? In other cultures, we don't necessarily begin conversations that way, but here we do. And so for Seth to be a copywriter with this breakout tagline at a big New York agency, this is who he is. And when he loses that, he's in need of another brand for himself. And so I think this light goes off where, oh, well, I'm Jewish. I can identify more strongly and observe more deeply my Judaism. And so I think that the rabbi for him is, is an opportunity to, to re-identify. And one of the questions though is, is this a real spiritual awakening? Is it, is it under the surface? Or is it just as I described? Is it, is it a new way for him to be branded? Mm. Yeah. And I guess it's up to the reader to decide which, which, which occurs, if either. Yeah, that's, that's my hope. I mean, my yeah. hope is that a lot of it is for the reader to decide. You know, I just yeah. sort of create the, ma the map and then the reader walks it. Yeah, and yeah, definitely. And that's exactly what you did. And that's part of a big part, I would say, of what makes your novel so compelling. The big question that permeates your novel is what do our jobs do to our souls? What do you think the answer to that question is? For me, writing this novel over the course of a decade, that was the biggest job I've ever done. And it was... I want to say healthy for my soul. It was unhealthy for some of my relationships, but for my soul, I felt deeply fulfilled writing this book. But then there are other kinds of jobs where it's nine to five, but it stretches way beyond the five and it starts to feel endless and you don't really have a sense of purpose. And I think that, you know, that is, that is deadening to the soul. I think that it's, it's really the kind of work that leads to a repression of, of self and then a sort of resentment that gets pushed out into the world. What is the USP, the unique selling proposition that makes your novel, The Men Can't Be Saved, different from other novels set in the world of advertising? Oh, well, now you're asking me to advertise my own. You're asking yes, me for yeah. an ad Yeah, for we're my going Ross Reeves mode here. Oh, this is meta. Mm. <laughs> so you mentioned Joshua Ferris's Then We Came to the End. And that book is really funny. And it's a, it's a zany look at the ad agency world from the perspective of first-person plural. That book is written largely in the we. You do something different in Joshua Ferris's book. You get more of this Greek chorus sense of, of the agency, and I think that's really valuable. But I've always personally been drawn to books that are first-person, where we just inhabit one person's, frankly, diseased mind. 
I would like to think that my, my book offers a coming-of-age story of what the advertising business looks like today, both for its, its joys and also its, its ills. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think you've done that. Ben Perkert, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on The Men Can't Be Saved. It's a terrific debut novel, and I look forward to reading your next book. Uh, thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. Ben Perkert is a poet and the author of the novel The Men Can't Be Saved. Find out more about Ben and his book at wpr.org slash beta. Stephen King is so famous today in part because of his influence on cinema. Coming up, French director and actress Daphne Bayweir joins us to talk about her documentary, King on Screen. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Stephen had a very cool phrase when people would say, well, what do you think of uh, what they've done to your books? He'd say, well, what do you mean, what have they done to, you, to my books? Well, look at the bookshelf. My books are all there. Nobody's done anything to my books. So I think he has a really great attitude about it, how his books are adapted. That's director Mike Flanagan in a clip from the documentary King on Screen. It was made by French actress and director Daphne Bayweir. The doc is a comprehensive look at the art of adapting America's most prolific author, the horror maestro himself, Stephen King. It features colorful commentary from directors of these King films, like Flanagan, Frank Darabont, and Mick Garris. King on screen reveals the secret sauce of moving King from the page to the screen by looking at the hits and the misses of dozens and dozens of adaptations. Daphne was introduced to Stephen King's work when she watched Darabont's version of The Green Mile when she was a kid. It really had a great impact on me, you know, uh, because of the stories, the characters. Um, I think it, yeah, it shaped a lot of uh, how I, um, of who I am today because I, I was very, uh, shocked by that film, it was something very important, you know, to 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 see um, those uh, social issues at a very young age, and it's something that really stayed with me. What is it about Stephen King's work that made you want to direct this documentary? Well, I think I really wanted to dig a little bit more about um, the, the process of adapting, you know, with the directors and talking about their work. Because, you know, Stephen King is so famous today, in part because of his influence on cinema and also the fact that cinema adapted him so much that people who never read a book, for example, who don't know really much about uh, literature, they know Stephen King because they've always seen at least one film. So it was something that I thought was quite interesting, you know, to to have, um, like to dig a little bit about this relation uh, between the author and the cinema. You've got to make a film that an audience can look at find themselves in, and at the same time, be true to the original story. That calls for the actual term, adaptation. And I think that you have to be bold in the sense of 
staying true to material, but also being bold about adapting it so that it fits on the screen, not on the page. You've said that you didn't want to have Stephen King appear in your documentary because it would have looked like he was sponsoring it. But I'm curious, if he did show up in your film, what question would you most want to ask him? I, I think, uh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I'm not sure, you know. I think it's always interesting to understand a little bit more about how, as an author, you are able to take some distance from the, 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 the movies that are made, you know. Because I think when you, you are writing a story, you've got so many things that you see in your mind and how are you able to let them go, you know, to, 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 to focus on someone's mind somehow, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. The most controversial adaptation of one of King's works has got to be Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And one of the talking heads in your film describes The Shining as a great Kubrick film, but not a good Stephen King film. Why did King hate Kubrick's take on his novel? Mostly because of the characters and the treatment that was made. Uh, of the characters, because you see, when you are reading The Shining, uh, Wendy is a strong female character, and she is not like that at all in uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, adaptation. And even when you are uh, watching the behind the scene of The Shining, you can see how uh, Kubrick is harsh. Nobody even said roll video. No oh, come on. What do you mean roll video? Seconds. We're killing ourselves out here, and you're going to be ready. I am too. I'm standing right play by mood the music? Door. No, I can't. Yeah, but when you came out like this, you said, just. We're sitting there because they say, wait a minute, and then you say on the radio, go. But when you do it, you've got to look desperate, Shelley. You're just wasting everybody's time there. I can't even get it. So it's something that we can feel in the film itself because of the way that she is seen through all the, the, the film. Also, the relationship between her and Jack, which is. Um, Jack Torrance goes into madness. Like you, you don't have like something smooth going into madness. It's like crazy a little bit since the beginning. And I think it's something that is quite disturbing because in the book, you really have this smooth evolution, you know, into this crazy things that is going on in his mind. David Cronenberg said to me once, right after The Shining came out, that the reason The Shining doesn't work is because they cast the ending. Jack Nicholson's crazy from the beginning. That works in Kubrick's world, but not in King's world. He's going there because he is trying to fix his family somehow. And it's not the feeling that we have in the film. So I think those are the the things that really trouble Stephen King in that film. Yeah, definitely. Stephen King is mostly known as a horror writer, but one of the adaptations of his work that is considered by many critics to be one of the best films of all time. I'm talking, of course, about Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. It's not a horror movie at all. What What is the impact of this film? Yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, with this documentary, we also wanted to break the, the myth of Stephen King, the master of horror, because we really wanted to give um, some place for uh, films like Shawshank Redemption, which is an amazing film. And as much as The Shining means to horror fans, The Shawshank Redemption means a lot to fans that are looking for some kind of hope in the world that their lives can improve no matter how bad they get. Well, it took five years for me to actually get around to writing the script. 
after Steve gave me the rights, I know I had a certain ambition for the creative aspect of what I wanted that script to be. And I didn't think I was a good enough writer yet. That's another thing I have to thank Stephen King for, his patience. He's able to write some, so much more than just horror. And I think it's uh, like that, that you can see how much someone is, um, is talented, you know, in what, uh, in his field, actually. It's the fact that he's able to write uh, absolutely anything. And I'm sure uh, if he was uh, writing a comedy, I'm sure it would be like, uh, he would be good at it because he's just so good at what he is doing and it's not just horror so yeah mm -hmm. and you and you can tell he has a sense of humor you can see that we behind the scenes in the behind the scenes footage he's very funny yeah well one of king's most popular adaptations was rob reiner's misery kathy bates won the academy award for her portrayal of the insane overzealous fan annie wilkes why do you think this movie resonated so much with audiences i think People can identify to James Caan's situation in that movie somehow, you know, that, that feeling of being powerless, you know. Uh, it's something that is frightening for a lot of people, you know, being in a situation where you are not able to, to defend yourself, you know. And uh, it can be quite difficult to, 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 to know how to survive. One really clear example of that dynamic is misery. We can all imagine it could happen to us. We are all James Conn's character in that movie, and Kathy Bates is so freaking scary. Last night it came so clear. I realized you just need more time. Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. It's a theme that we have in a lot of Stephen King story, the, the, the fact of being, you know, locked down in some way. And I, I think it's something that it's a fear that we all share. And so this is something that's really had a great impact on the public. Yeah. Exactly. Stephen King doesn't get enough credit for his ability to create intriguing, fully developed characters, especially his female characters. You talked to Taylor Hackford, who directed the adaptation of Dolores Claiborne. What do you think of this film? I really love that film since uh, the beginning, since the first time I watched it. Yeah, it's a film that I think is very, like, it taps into it, you know, it's it's perfect because it, it really captured well uh, this uh, difficult subject. Dolores is heroic. How does a mother deal with incest? A lot of them know it and just go along with it. Dolores was not about to ignore it. Dolores understood the horror of what her husband was putting this child through. It had to be repaid, and she did, which I thought was Stephen King. Stephen King is about monster, but it's also about uh, the monster that lives in all of us and in humans, you know, in general. And it's something that is, well, what can be more uh, horrific than something like that, you know, a father doing that to his daughter. So I think it's something that is like so painful and so horrific that it's something that he explored a lot because what, what's more horrible than that mm, exactly yeah very well said directors rob reiner frank darabont mick garris and george romero have all adapted multiple king works which director do you think meshed best with king's material well that's difficult to, <laughs> to, to yeah. say i've always uh, loved uh, frank darabont's adaptations because i think they are so 
uh, amazing. You know, he's um, he's able to really uh, capture uh, the, the work of Stephen King and doing amazing films with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plus, as you pointed out earlier, as we were discussing, uh, your favorite uh, Stephen King film is The Green Mile, directed by Frank Darabont. Yeah, you, we can't really have a conversation about Stephen King movies without talking about the ending of The Mist. What did you think of that? the way that film ended the first time you saw it? I think it's so shocking because you you are not expected to see that. So somehow, and I think it's so great because it's such an amazing ending. It's the kind of ending that really stick with you, you know, and it's the, it, well, it's the kind of film that you will remember for years because in part of the, that ending you know so i think it's it was really uh the, the best ending to find and it's tragic of course but at the same time it's like uh this act of love i think it's why it's so controversial movies i think need an ending when i wrote the script i sent it to stephen king and my note was steve i gave it an ending <laughs> and it's it's definitely a left turn, and I'm, I'm leaving this up to you. The irony is, when we went to the premiere in New York, Steve basically said, I wish I would have thought of that ending for the book. Because if I would have thought of that, that's how I would have ended the story. That's how Frank Darabont was uh, able, uh, that's uh, how much uh, Frank was able to, to capture Stephen King universe, you know, to mm-hmm. the point that when he changes something uh, in one of uh, Stephen King's stories, Stephen King himself says that he wished he had that idea. So I think uh, it was a uh, it was so such a relief, you know, for Frank because he was a little bit nervous at the beginning to talk about this uh, idea that he had to Stephen King because he thought it was the right one, the right handing to have. And so, yeah, it was. Um, I, I think it was uh, great for him to know that uh, King was more than okay with his decision. You know, absolutely. If you were going to adapt a Stephen King book that has not yet been adapted, which would you choose, and why? I think I would choose Drew McKee. You know, I I really love Drew McKee because I think it's not like the the film that is. Uh, so well known the, the book i mean sorry that is the um, well known you know it's not the, the book that everybody is thinking about but when people uh a lot of people love to key and it's so visual you know it's so interesting because you are able to do a lot of things uh, with a, a great book a great story like that on screen uh, it's amazing all you can do you know and also the the the, the main character i think it's such an interesting sort of story because the main character's uh, character uh, just lost his arm and is like having this um, middle life crisis because he has to learn everything again so it's so powerful you know to 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 be able to explore uh, that kind of um, of uh, life story, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daphne Bayweer, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on King on Screen. We look forward to watching your next film. Great. Thank you so much. Daphne Bayweer is an actress and the director of the documentary King on Screen. Find out more and where to watch at wpr.org slash beta. Thank you.
Before we go, I want to add my own take to the whole Kubrick King Shining debate. Allow me to take you back to May 23rd, 1980. I'm in my hometown, Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm on my way to the Capital Six Theatre Multiplex on Granville Street to watch the premiere of Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Shining. Uncle Stevie was my introduction to horror fiction, and I loved reading The Shining. The characters were so fully formed that I felt like I knew them. And as I got deeper into the book, I became more and more frightened. It was becoming clear to me that this was not going to end well. But as the end credits of the movie adaptation rolled, I felt very disappointed. I disliked, 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 disliked this movie, to paraphrase the late, great Roger Ebert. The whole Here's Johnny bit really rubbed me the wrong way. It seemed like a scene from a lame Saturday Night Live sketch. Talking with Daphne and watching King on screen helped crystallize why I disliked the movie adaptation so much. As director Frank Darabont says, It's a really good Stanley Kubrick movie, but it's a terrible Stephen King movie. And filmmaker Mick Garris says that David Cronenberg told him, The reason The Shining doesn't work is because Jack Nicholson's crazy from the beginning. Frank and Mick are absolutely right. There's one bright spot. Wendy Carlos's haunting music fit the film perfectly. Now I have nothing against Nicholson. He co-wrote the screenplay for one of my all-time favorite films, the monkey's box office bomb, Head. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. It also makes him a dull character. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Greg Marshall, Ben Perkert, and Daphne Bay Weir. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Don't forget to subscribe to Beta on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Be sure to offer a rating. That'll help us build our alpha army. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Special thanks to producer Tyler Ditter. I'm your number one fan. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Ooh, here come the boss man. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. And although it was hard, he gutted it out like he always did. <laughs>